Welcome to the Hat Soil Health Podcast, a production of Hoosier Ag Today and made possible by the Indiana Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, a program of the Indiana Conservation Partnership. Once a month, we'll spotlight the many efforts around Indiana by CCSI and its many partners to improve soil health on Indiana cropland. Here's the host of the Hat Soil Health Podcast, Eric Pfeiffer. Welcome into the Hat Soil Health Podcast. I'm Eric Pfeiffer, and I'm very glad to have you along today as we discuss harvesting cover crops for forage. Now, on this podcast, we've covered a lot of grazing of cover crops, but a lot of farmers don't have the infrastructure like fencing and watering in place to do that. And a growing number of farmers are harvesting cover crops for forage purposes. So we're going to discuss that today, and I have a couple of experts on the line here to do that. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves. I'm going to start with Keith Johnson, Purdue Extension Forage Specialist. Keith, hello, welcome, and please introduce yourself. Well, good day, everybody. Uh, Thank you for listening in, and I look forward to working with um, my colleague here that will introduce himself in a second. My name is Keith Johnson. Uh, I have been the Purdue University Forage Extension Specialist uh, for 40 years almost, and uh, really have enjoyed my career in, in all aspects of things, uh, particularly as it relates to use of forages by livestock. Very good. Keith, thank you so much for joining us today. Certainly appreciate it. And let's introduce now Greg Downing. Greg is a forage agronomist with Cisco Seed. Greg, thank you for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure, Eric. Uh, that's true. I've been with Cisco now for about 12 years. I've been in this industry now for 30-some years, so uh, I do call myself a forage agronomist for my love of livestock and desire to be on the farm all the time. So I am a field agronomist out there looking at fields and trying to solve problems and uh, make uh, make uh, things a little easier and profitable on the farm. Very good. Thank you for joining us today. Let's go back a little bit here, gentlemen, and Keith, we'll start with you. I want to talk a little bit about Last year, 2019, prevented plant. We had a lot of things going on. A lot of folks trying cover crops last year, but uh, a winter that was lacking some quality forage as well. Can you just go back a little bit and talk about the quality of forage from the past year and and what folks are trying to do this year? Yes, it was an extremely uh, problematic year because it started out with uh, rains, you know, really in the fall that extended into the winter, that extended into the springtime, and things did get uh, delayed. So in the traditional uh, view of things in terms of people that have perennial forages, uh, a lot of this did not get cut for the first time until late June or early July, which is really in contrast to what we have this year. We had windows of opportunity that now the second crop is ought to be growing and getting close to harvest. And a year ago, we didn't even have much of the first done. And what that means is the quality was extremely poor uh, for many. And um, we put out the word that it was important to uh, analyze forages, uh, to know what nutrient content there was in them so that uh, rations could be developed to keep uh, livestock in good good health. And uh, so, yeah, extreme contrast this year. Uh, most hay should be, have been made and... Uh, would encourage people to continue to sample their hay and send off the sample to the laboratory so they can develop rations that's right for the forage grown this year. Greg, talk to me a little bit about, let's let's kind of start at the beginning here and, and 
the main use for a cover crop kind of determines its management. Uh, the primary reason for using a cover crop will significantly impact the planning and management for its use, right? Well, sure. And it all starts with what am I trying to accomplish? You know, what's the goal? And it, it's going to vary on even the same farm kind of kind of changes with the weather and the season too sometimes, but uh, it has to start with that. Eric. What's my uh, animal needs? Uh, and, uh, you know, well, my whole cropping rotation is a, is a big consideration, of course. And uh, as Keith was just alluding to, when weather doesn't work in your favor, now it's uh, changes the plan, but you still have to have a clear objective to begin with. Yeah, and as I look at uh, cover crops, Greg, I guess what I'm seeing is the talk about uh, soil health uh, improvement. Yes. Um, you know, we've gone away from when it was very usual uh, several decades ago that individuals had perennial forages on the farm and almost every farm had livestock. And that's certainly not the case now. So those perennial forages in rotation in particular did give us soil health. And then as we transition to row crop agriculture alone, um, we lost some of that ability to improve or keep soil health. And so this idea of keeping the landscape green, you know, for as much of the year as possible came along um, and cover crops have become uh, an important part of the industry to help. And really some of the things that I see cover crops doing uh, that, that's talked about is, uh, reducing uh, erosion, uh, scavenging nutrients uh, or recycling them uh, so that they don't leave the farm. And, um, you know, along the way, uh, soil physical properties are improved. And then this opportunity for a livestock feed is here now too. Well, I, I can't really add a lot to that. I think there, there is one big factor though that I'm finding that there's a, there's a new re revived joy in just seeing things grow that I haven't even experienced before. I mean, if, how many people have seen flax? How many people have seen uh, facilia? And, and to know if they grow together and, and when they do what, and is that accomplishing my objective? So I think it's been a really fun thing for a lot of uh, experienced farmers, as well as some of our younger guys coming back on the farm to uh, see things they've never seen growing on their farm. After all, if you're a farmer, you like to see things grow. Yeah, yeah and I think there is something about uh, green, uh, frankly, of being uh, aesthetically pleasing, and it's got has value then associated with it. And you know, Greg, I think both of us can probably say that's one of the reasons we have enjoyed our jobs yeah. is the fact that we're not caught in one specific crop every day or two specific <laughs> crops. Let's say in the state of Indiana, that may maybe corn or soybeans, and uh, you know, we have worked with, you know, probably close to, in your case, more than I have, I'm sure, in terms of seed sales. But, uh, you know, we're talking about close to probably 100 or more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I just was on the phone here this morning with a really nice young fellow. I don't know. He's probably in his mid-30s or whatever. He and dad are really doing a nice job of rotation and just breaking up, uh, working on particular project fields, I'll call it 20 or 40 acres that have been neglected or not working well and, uh, and rotating and feeding, of course, a lot of the, the forage they're producing here is a cover crop. But 
even I had to laugh because he said to me this morning, uh, you know, I'm really bored with corn and soybeans. This is exciting. <laughs> and it is, Keith, you're right. That's what that's what makes my job fun. Yeah, there is there is something about uh, diversity of crops growing. And, you know, I was in an environment uh, yesterday, Greg, and I didn't bring up the other attribute of cover crops that, you know, is aesthetically important uh, and, and pleasing is I was out in a pasture setting yesterday and the amount of bird tweeting that I heard was just pleasing. And yeah. uh, when you have forages growing and even cover crop forages, it does provide a different ecology for different things to be. And so there's just something to me that uh, makes life a little bit happier when we've got that uh, opportunity to bring diversity of plants into the environment. And we start seeing not only the tweeting of birds, but we, we can see different life, uh, wildlife uh, that are around as well. And uh, I think that brings a smile to people's face. It's amazing to me when you're out there mowing and you're just seeing all these white butterflies everywhere. And, and then the red winged blackbirds that I haven't seen too many of since I was a kid, but you're right. This it's all part of working with uh, nature, the way uh, she works. And, and, and we're actually seeing benefits Keith in our soil when we do this so that our inputs are, are um, I say more effective for the dollars I'm spending but uh, that's why the cover crops for me is, uh, well, it's a centerpiece. If you're going to have soil turned around, there's no better way and no less expensive way to do it than let the plants do it. And with all the variety of plants that we, species that we put in these mixes now, uh, it, they'll do it, especially when you had an opportunity like last year with the, the plant. What an opportunity right here in the summertime to put a, a 12, 15 things in there just because I couldn't plant my cash crop this year and have an opportunity to improve the soil. And I think we're seeing the effects of some of those acres then this following spring, maybe for the first time that guys had never done that before. It was great. Well, and I think you mentioned the diversity of species and let's, let's talk about legumes. I mean, they're a special type of crop uh, the ability to produce nitrogen with, uh, you know, essentially nitrogen in the soil air and with an inoculum uh, that has rhizobia specific to the legumes being uh, grown. My gosh, to be able to produce, you know, 100 pounds of nitrogen per acre, possibly more as a, as a credit from some of these cover crops uh, really has some value, particularly when you're following that with the crop. Uh, that can't fix its own nitrogen and like 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 corn. Yeah, and a thing that we that there's so much going on here we don't know because but we've got technology we got instruments now to try to help us see it. But so we keep looking at roots and we get excited about the roots. But but at the same time when you take a plant like buckwheat that has a little tap root and uh, peas that don't have big root systems, but you look what those two plants will do at one time being present in the soil that changes it, whether we're taking uh, mobilizing some sulfur and phosphorus in the case of buckwheat, in the case of peas goes back to your point, Keith, with the nitrogen. I don't think there's anything nicer to put in front of a, a corn crop than, than peas, but you can't get excited about the roots, but they're doing something. <laughs> 
That's amazing. Amazing what those legume roots uh, do for us. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. You know, looking at um, this cover crop as a, as a harvested feed, Greg, you know, I go back and look at my career and even previous uh, to that, this has been ongoing. It was very traditional for many dairy producers to plant a small grain in the fall, not with the intention of harvesting it necessarily as grain, but they harvested that winter cover crop like winter wheat, maybe in particular, or maybe winter rye, and harvesting it in May as a dry hay or putting it into the silo mm -hmm. and uh, following that then with a, a double crop. And for them, it very well could have been um, corn for silage. Um, but that kind of, you know, cropping system was around, particularly within the dairy industry and pretty common because there were a lot of dairies within our state, which we don't see now, but even these large dairies that we, we have, uh, have that, uh, situation that they're doing this cropping of uh, winter small grains uh, over the course of the winter, harvesting in early May, and then following that with, a, with another crop. Yeah. And now we're finding that this is being done by uh, people that have not ever done that before and more interested in, in harvesting it as a, as a hay or a silage. Right. Then, then, then as that uh, kind of changes and shifts from, from pastures to more confinement, uh, we've got, uh, more intensity going on in the production fields then to raise a better, a higher quality forage. And so now you got things coming along in the industry, in the seed industry, for uh, improved uh, triticales, uh, let's say, that uh, that we didn't have before. We got forage type rural rye that we, you know, been around for a while, but, uh, but still improved varieties keep coming out. Uh, these things uh, are pretty exciting. It, Again, because we get more production to fit the, the system that we're now evolved to. Yeah, triticale is an interesting crop. Um, really, it's a cross between wheat and rye. And uh, the trita part of triticale comes from uh, the genus of wheat, which is triticum. And cicale is the genus of uh, rye. And you put the front end of wheat and the rear end of uh, rye together in terms of their uh, their species names, or I should say their genus names, it's triticale. So it's, it's man got involved in doing that. And you're right. I mean, the breeders uh, have looked at triticale. It was supposed to be a grain, as I understand it. It was kind of going to be for developing countries, but it really didn't pan out to be that effective. But along the way, they found, boy, this is, this is pretty good forage. Yeah. And then the breeders got involved, and they made it better forage. As you said, there's better varieties today than what they were 40 years ago. And uh, so, yeah, I think that one has to be on your chart with a winter small grain that would uh, be utilized. Yeah, well, and then, then the backup to my favorite time of the year is now in the summer with your summer annuals like sorghum sedan. And boy, Keith, uh, you can't say enough about what's going on right now at Purdue. With, uh, well, your... that's where I was this morning, and I was a <laughs> tad bit late for this podcast. I was mowing a strip so that we could get to it readily uh, to our experiment uh, that has uh, different sorghums in it. And we're evaluating them uh, with grazing uh, use. And uh, yeah, the potential of this snow prussic acid sorghum is outstandingly exciting. There's no doubt about it. And I want to come back to uh, maybe toot a little bit about Purdue University too, Greg, is uh, let's go back uh, 
several decades, the development of the brown midrib sorghum oh, yes. right. uh, was essentially developed uh, here at Purdue. And then industry took right. the opportunity, thankfully, and that's probably, tell me, is that more uh, seed sales of brown midrib in oh, Indiana yeah. now as compared to the normals? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No question about it. It's the first thing that we'll run out of. In fact, we, here we are in the middle of June, and we're already hand to mouth. When's that next truck coming in? Because we want the BMR all the time. And for the audience that doesn't know, the brown midrib does have a brown midrib on its leaf, and that's an indicator of lesser altered lignin in the plant. And as a result, it's more digestible and, and animals can consume more of it. And they do have a, a resulting uh, enhanced performance. So it's, uh, yeah, one of the great developments, I would say, in our career that ended up in the industry is mm -hmm. certainly the brown midrib component of sorghums. And then it is also involved here with uh, pearl millet as well. Exactly. We just got that, uh, what, three years ago? Uh, no, it hasn't been very long. Maybe maybe this is the fourth year now, and that was like, I, I can't get too excited about pearl millet. I mean, it has its place, and again, it brings diversity in, and, and we can put it to play really nice together in a mix here, but it doesn't give you that much tonnage, right? But yet, it still works on some poor soils or where things have been neglected. When it gets hot and dry, it doesn't take much uh, to make it grow, and it's digestible and well, it's always been the go-to for the guy that was afraid of the sorghum sedans with prussic acid. And then, but it didn't have that digestibility until we had the brown midrib trait. So that was a real breakthrough. Yeah, exactly. So when we start following it, as you said, with, uh, oh, let's say a wheat grain harvest in late June, or early July, and then we've got a failing perennial crop, uh, hay crop probably is, is on its way out. And it happens particularly with alfalfa or something that's Red clover is not going to last indefinitely, no. but to be able to follow that then with a pearl millet and know that we can graze that on the night of a freeze uh, in October and not be concerned about animal health because of uh, prussic acid, which it does not have. But again, going back, that's one of the exciting things about uh, this potential of this non-prussic acid sorghum sedan grass uh, that hopefully will make it to the industry someday. Well, and then I'm going to jump to something that maybe isn't quite as exciting and a real game changer as these two things are, but just simple oats. I mean, oats do so much to improve the soil. They sweeten the soil and, and they're finding out. I was reading some really interesting research here just a week ago of what all's going on there with the microbes and exchanging nutrients with the oats. And we already know it's a really mycorrhizae. Uh, establisher, which again is a good thing to have ahead of your corn, but but we've got all this breeding that's been going on to give us forage oats. So we're using forage oats now in cover crops when we're not even going to feed it to livestock because we want all we can get of that particular plant. So simple oats. Oats are one fantastic, I don't know, just dynamic opportunity of a crop. You can graze it, you can hay it, you can ensile it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I enjoy oatmeal every morning. <laughs> You're listening to the Hat Soil Health Podcast, and we've got Keith Johnson here. He's the Purdue Extension Forage Specialist. We also have Greg Downing, Forage Agronomist with Cisco Seed. And Greg, we, we talked about all of these different species and, and some of the benefits. 
it's a little too late for summer covers right now, but you're ramping up here for uh, kind of the fall season here as well. Uh, talk about what you're seeing right now and some of the planning that needs to happen for folks. Well, Eric, you might be surprised because uh, we've we've had some late plantings, as you know. Some of the, some of this corn and even soybeans, maybe it's replanted or planted for the first time, is maybe only ten days old now. So, believe it or not, there are so many guys that are playing around, and I say playing, but because it is experimental, we we don't really know until we try, and the the weather and so forth is going to going to dictate how successful we are, but we're interceding some of these kind of covers uh, under cover in the corn and soybeans. We're going in now and doing that now. Okay. At, at the same time, I still got my wheat field over there. That's going to be coming off or the barley that's coming off now. And, and that opens up that summer uh, cover, but to be interceding with our corn and soybeans in the row is something that's uh, I mean, it's almost a daily question I get. It's pretty, it's really fun. And we just hope we get the moisture to, to see how some of those things, uh, you know, move on. But uh, yeah, but other than that, normally in the month of July is when we've got everything uh, laid by, we've got our nitrogen done and everything's kind of settling down on the farm and we're going to the county fairs. And then we're thinking about what am I going to plant for this winter? Uh, for a winter cover. Um, so whether I have livestock or not, you know, uh, I'm probably still gonna put a lot of things in there. For most guys anyway, we're now getting comfortable enough that they're willing to see things winter over. Before when we first started, it was oats and radish because they're easy. They give us all this nice growth, they cover the soil and then they die over the winter. So I don't have to, you know, work around them or, or terminate them in the spring. And now guys are going, well, I want things to live and live and live, maybe even into the middle part of May next year. Keep giving me that benefit, the longer, the better. We're talking about planning, execution, uh, some of the fall covers and, and when we should be ordering those. I mean, it should be sometime in, in July, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 First one to the plate's probably a good idea in, in terms of availability. That's usually the case, isn't it, Greg? Yeah, yeah, it is. It absolutely is. And here's the thing, we, back to the sorghum sedans and all those summer annuals, we, you know, we hit a time here a couple of years ago where we just consumed them and all those guys out West, of course, that's their main crop. The, you know, for us, it's been a secondary thing. Uh, and now uh, the industry as a whole, we can't get enough raised in a year to get a surplus, you know? So these, uh, these guys run out, well, like right now. Uh, usually uh, we're just scrambling to keep uh, what we can find. Last year, of course, that prevented plant, that was another situation that wiped out a lot of seed. And so now we're at the mercy of, of Mother Nature to give us a good crop this year. So timing becomes, I think, keeps getting creeped back on us every year. It's like, I better be thinking about my whole year's needs in April. <laughs> it's not easy. Yeah, you know, another crop I just want to bring up, and uh, I understand seed availability has been been low. Um, it's it's hard to make a dry hay out of these summer annuals, typically when we think of sorghum sedan grass and Sudan grass and pearl millet, but teff uh, has, has come into play, and it seems like there's more and more acreage of 
teff being grown every year, at least through the contacts I've had. Is that the case that you're seeing? Absolutely. Good. I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's green grass. And, uh, but it's, it's been a stress every year too. And, and some guys have learned how nice it is. It, the only problem with TEF, as you, as you can explain better than me, Keith, is, is just that establishment. I got to do all this preparation for the soil like I'm going to plant alfalfa. And, the, and let's face it, we're in a no-till, you know, uh, uh, time in our life now. We don't want to destroy the, or disturb the soil or go to that effort if we don't have to. So that's the only downfall. Other than that, it's a great grass and the seed supply is always short. We've been out of it at uh, Cisco now for, I don't know, two or three weeks. So, and typically, see there again, that would have been May, uh, that we're starting to run short. And then we finally said, well, we can get some. But the only thing left in the industry is 50% coated. Right. And it's 80% germ even then. So it's like, we're not going to do that. That's not good seed. It's, well, it's TEF, TEF is probably the smallest forage seed that I have worked with ever. And that's one reason to coat it is to put a little color on it so you can see it. And then also to get flowability to be a little bit better in terms of calibrating because it is an extremely small seed. Timothy. Yeah, well, smaller than Timothy. <laughs> Teff. Teff is smaller than Timothy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's Yeah. But yet I've had uh, old guys with junky uh, drills and, and young guys with fancy, it doesn't matter. Uh, you just need to get it out there and press it in the ground because you'll, you'll bury it otherwise. And a little bit of rain get, gets it started, and it's so competitive that you don't have weeds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and one of the things with all these crops, particularly as people work with them, is be cognizant of what the seeding depth and be cognizant of the time of year that they ought to be sown because that's certainly best management practices at that seeding time is when you're going to seed it to you know meet the uh, – opportunity of really getting it established more successfully yeah. and then uh, don't plant it too deep because like mm -hmm. I say TEF I think they say an eighth of an inch yeah. is kind of the depth that you're looking at and if you start sucking uh, putting that thing into the soil uh, a half an inch you're kind of out of out mm -hmm. of luck and knowing that uh, these winter small grains you know they ought to be planted around that uh, inch or so uh, and not two and a half inches uh, so we need to be cognizant of that. I'd like to go back to the, the harvest uh, of these winter small grains that probably fit in pretty well, uh, along with maybe uh, some other components as well, uh, following this corn or soybean production. But, you know, one of the things that's come along uh, in our careers that has really helped the case of making forages more timely in the month of May is baleage. Mm -hmm. um, the yeah. ability to um, take uh, large round bales and they actually can do it with large rectangular bales and wrap them in the plastic individually or in a tube um, and ensile that. Um, but we really need to follow the right practices uh, in, in making that because it's preserved by a right pH and that right pH is um, harder to achieve than uh, if you don't follow the protocol of making good baleage and you know, the pH we're striving for is four and a half. We've had a couple of botulism cases in the mm -hmm. state with winter small grains. 
And uh, if you look at maybe why, um, I would say it's the fact that the crop was mature. We had that problem in 2019. So we didn't have fermentable carbohydrates to uh, get it to uh, uh, acidify properly, uh, to ferment properly. Um, moisture content when you do it is extremely critical. Uh, in my mind, a lot of people are pushing it uh, way too high or way too low. And I think they need to be more in this uh, 50 to 50 percent kind of category instead of being down there at 35 uh, percent or up there at 75 percent. They're going to create real problems in fermentation. So we want to avoid those sort of things. But you know, proper protocol of making baileage is important. But it certainly has given us the opportunity to fight Mother Nature, to get it made in timely fashion for quality as compared to these rainstorms that can pass through every you know, three to four days so easily in the month of April and May. Right. And then you got the humidity that we're always living with at that time. The, the, the two points I would think about there, Keith, is that number one is you got varieties now in your sorghum sedans that kind of like corn. It's like, what do I want it to do? It's length of uh, uh, day length. It's uh, whether it's going to be, uh, you know, photosensitive or not. Uh, but then to your point of making the baleage, we've got dry stock and we got juicy stocks. And so, uh, and now more guys are saying that they, uh, just this year, I've talked to several that have got uh, bale wrappers. And now, now it's like I got options. I, I'm, I can breathe a little easier. We've been putting it off and now I can do that. Boy, I can really plan things uh, and better and put up better uh, forage. But having those varieties that act different, like you're saying, so you're not getting uh, water running out of the bag uh, either is pretty good. Yeah, okay. it's it's really amazing when you look at uh, what people have done to help improve crops is, is really amazing. Uh, and I don't think a lot of us recognize, even with what we consume, the improvements that have been made. Mm -hmm. And what livestock consume has certainly been improved as well. And I guess maybe as an off topic, and I'm just going to bring it up because we're talking about improvements and forages, but I think the development of the potato leaf hopper resistant alfalfa mm. uh, was a huge contribution. Yes. Um, I understand this last big old storm that came through a uh, crystal ball remnants uh, dropped potato leaf hopper. Like you can't believe a couple of weeks early, it's, a, it's essentially a sap sucking insect and, you know, varieties of alfalfa were developed that uh, help uh, reduce the negative aspect of that as compared to those that are susceptible to that insect. Good point. And then, of course, uh, from the alfalfa breeder standpoint, they've got a lot of things that have come through the years as, as far as quality, too. So now we've got uh, varieties that hold uh, hold their quality longer, even though I've had a delay in, uh, in harvest. And, uh, of course, now we've even got varieties that are less lignin than the older varieties, that, uh, which is the, the problem, see, of having quality anyway. So then if, when we have leafhopper uh, protection, and, and I saw it this week, uh, you said that storm came through and dropped a lot of leafhoppers, but I guess I was in some pretty good alfalfa. I didn't see any damage. I was looking for it. Yeah. It's probably starting now. Yeah. Hey, you know, you're, you're a great, uh, uh, with a great seed company and do a great job in, in working with farmers and getting quality seed. I think that's extremely important. 
you know, there are some people that talk about growing their own seed as a cover crop. Mm. And I always makes me a bit nervous. Um, from the standpoint, um, it's, it's easier said than really done to do that properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're taking up ground that could be growing another crop. Germination could go awry if you don't store it properly. You mentioned the humidity of an Indiana summer. That can play into you know, not storing the seed that's going to be used to cover crop that was homegrown. Mm-hmm. Weed seed that might come into that that we didn't think was there, but it was. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen any train wrecks out in the field? Because I know you get out there a lot to look at farmer-grown seed, or do you not see much of that? Well, I know that there's a small percentage, I'll put it that way, and I don't know what that number is or how many people are doing it, of course, that I'm not even aware of, but I'm sure there's a lot more that I'm not aware of that are doing cereal rye, okay? But but I can tell you, a few years back, I was on one of the, just a, such a wonderful farm as far as the soil is concerned for all the years of cover crop and the, the soil itself is already some of the best in the state. Uh, and he says, I think I'm going to leave this cereal rye and take it for seed. And I said, well, why not? You know, try it. Uh, you got to try it. Well, it looked like it was a bumper crop, uh, but yet it only made 50 bushel. Right. And then when he, when he goes to clean it and, and gets ready to save it, he's got to go, he's got to find a place to store it. It's got to be at the right moisture. Like you say, you got to keep the mice out of it in, in the building and all that, but he sends it off to crop improvement for a test and comes back 50% germ. Right. So as you, to your point, Keith, has a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of messing around really for a 50% germ that he, it was, so he never did it again. But other people will, you know, that's, uh, that might be okay. It's worth the effort. They want to, they want to do it. It kind of fits with the rotation. They're going to feed the grain anyway, or, you know, they're not really keeping it for seed necessarily. I don't know. There's different uses and different things going on there, but I don't think it's worth the time either. Uh, one of the most terrific things I saw was at a, a pasture session, a perennial pasture, and they were saving their own red clover. Yeah. And every pasture had the parasitic weed daughter along yeah. with it. And they essentially were spreading the parasitic weed daughter all across their farm by harvesting their own red clover. There you go. So there's cases of that. You know, it can work, but, you know, each... I think one of the things special about the United States is the diversity of um, climate that we have that allow us to specialize in different things. And, you know, these people that are raising this cereal rye and, and uh, seed wheat and seed oats and mm-hmm. seed anything, it's mm-hmm. very, very specialized and they're very good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just as we're good in the corn belt is uh, growing good corn, corn, soybeans, and winter wheat, but when you get into seed production, it's a whole different uh, uh, bailiwick of best management practices to do it correctly. It's kind of like my friend Steve Houghton says at the company, there's a reason why we don't grow these things here. <laughs> exactly, and if you look at past information, uh, when it was more common to try to do these things back in the 1920s and 30s, we got a great archive at Purdue of some of these old extension publications, and you learn about the problems uh, that came along and the, the insects boring into the seed and 
Um, the poor yields that you were talking about, and uh, it, 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 it's some of those things I think we need to yeah. uh, understand that maybe it's best to check with, uh, you know, the seedsman uh, and find out uh, what quality varieties they have. Well, again, on the legality of it being in the seed trade, there are seed laws. So if you're raising it to think you're going to sell some to your neighbors, uh, that's that's legal. But if you go advertising it, now now you're going to have somebody knocking on your door. Yeah, it's a totally different game when it's on farm for yourself as compared to them trying to go through the merchandising aspect. You're right, though. Seed law is there. Quality is always going to be less. The, 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 the cereal rye, for an example, and a lot of the oats, of course, are coming out of the north. And that's always, they always are quality. They have good test weight. They germ nice. They just come right out of the ground like you'd expect. And uh, I think we're going to be, be working with northern oats and northern cereal rye for a long time because we just can't do it as well here. Yeah, exactly. And let's hope the industry understands in those regions uh, that they hopefully can meet our supply needs, particularly as cover crop acreage continues to increase. And uh, so we've got an opportunity to use some of these crops in a bigger way than we have in many, many years. Gentlemen, time flies when you're having fun and time flew and it's time now to wrap up the Hat Soil Health podcast. And I want to thank both of you for your conversation today. Very interesting stuff and a lot of good information for uh, for our growers out there. So Keith Johnson, Greg Downing, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. My pleasure. And that concludes another Hat Soil Health podcast presented by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. You can find more about their programs and a schedule of events at ccsin.org. I'm Eric Pfeiffer. Thank you for joining us today on the Hat Soil Health podcast, a production of Hoosier Ag Today, Indiana's Farm Network.